Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile syrup podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is on Federico D'Alessandro's Tau. On the show with me today is Mobile Syrup Features Editor, Igor Bonifacic. Igor, this isn't your first time on the show, but this is your first time co-hosting. How are you doing today? I'm good, and yourself? I'm quite well, thank you for asking. Later on the show, I'll speak with Lex Gill, a research fellow at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs Citizen Lab. Lex will shed some insight on the subject of digital profiling, while also speaking to some of the ways that our digital footprints can come back to haunt us. But first... Igor and I are going to speak a little bit about Tau in a segment I like to call Burning Down the Taus. Here are some credits. Tau was directed by Federico D'Alessandro. It was written by Noga Landau. Bear McCreary composed the film's score. Larry Smith contributed to the film's cinematography, while Scott Chestnut edited the whole thing together. Tau tells the story of Julia, a bored, lonely thief played by Micah Monroe, living in a futuristic society. When she's kidnapped by Ed Skrine's Alex, a tech executive whose chief invention is a hyper-advanced artificial intelligence named Tao, voiced by Gary Oldman, of course, Julia realizes her only option is to convince Tao to help her escape. Now, Igor, since this is your first time co-hosting, I'm going to start by asking a simple question. How did you feel about Tao? When you initially showed me the trailer, I was somewhat apprehensive because I don't think the trailer really conveys the tone of the movie. It kind of posits it as this kind of torture porn with AI at its center. And I think for the first 20 minutes, it lives up to that billing. Certainly, um, you know, when Julia is first kidnapped and then put into this very bleak prison and operated on. That's kind of the tone of Tao. And then once there's a bit of murdering and her two fellow inmates are murdered by Tao and his uh, compatriot Ares, it just slightly shifts tone. And for like, there's about 10 or 15 minutes in which it actually kind of lives up to what I would say is like really good speculative fiction in that you know one of my favorite genres is sci-fi right because speculative fiction it asks us to ask questions and it kind of puts a mirror to society and to human beings and there's 10 or 15 minutes in Tao in which it really does that right is it like the most nuanced and thoughtful take I've seen on kind of this question no in fact you know when I think uh, when I finished Tao one of the initial thoughts that came to me was more or less the premise is very much the same as Ex Machina that movie is you know Alex Garland is one of the most talented script writers working in Hollywood today and I think you know the execution in Ex Machina is much better but Tao had its moments right so this specifically the 10-15 minutes I'm referring to it's when Julia and Tao as you said, voiced by Gary Oldman, start to just talk about what it means to be human and 
what it means to be a person and kind of the importance of memories to our identity and who we are as human beings and our existence, right? I mean, the movie doesn't really touch upon it, but like something that, or it's hinted and alluded to is there's one segment in which Tao asks Julia if the other inmates were called Julia and she says, no, they have their own names. And it's not really pointed out, at least really effectively, but she never asks their names, right? She doesn't know their names. They're kind of lost to the world. Yeah, so those 10, 15 minutes were really really enjoyable and actually like I thought I was going to hate this movie and I was more or less pleasantly surprised I because it's one of those you know instances in which you go in with certain expectations and those are changed and then I would say if you listen to this podcast and then you have any interest in this movie don't watch the trailer just jump right into it excuse the first 20 minutes because they are pretty bad I would say like I, I just hate that kind of torture porn stuff and it really is like pretty I mean there's certainly worse you could see but like it kind of creeps on that and then also i just wanted to say man aries is like the worst robot ever like the cgi (laughs) for that robot is just inexcusable and just like the whole premise of that robot is dumb and one last thing i did want to mention was in relation to those 10-15 minutes there's a question or there's a kind of thought that how poses which is ai just like any technology is a tool and i think as it relates to ai it's like i think there's the potential the the thing that the movie posit is there's a potential for a lot of good as long as we kind of teach ai with our with our kind of better virtues in mind and so when julia teaches you know t- like essentially the movie is the struggle between what alex is teaching alex the psychopathic creator of tao and julia his test subject let's say is teaching tao and kind of the conflict of those two right and i think what the movie posits is if we leave it up to kind of just like corporate tech bros to lead the development of ai it's going to end in tears whereas if we kind of show ai our compassion uh, as i said better human virtues our thoughtfulness our curiosity there's a potential there for a lot of good. So you've touched on a lot of different subjects with this movie. You've brought up the the first 15, 20 minutes where the movie sort of seems like it's torture porn. You've brought up the subject of tech bros leading our future and why we shouldn't necessarily trust them to solve all of our problems. You've obviously brought up the subject of artificial intelligence because AI is central to this film. So I, I want to ask you then, what exactly do you think this movie is about? Again, you've you've gone into some of the some of the details about how it's a little bit more nuanced than the trailer might at first suggest. But in your opinion, what is this movie about? So if you watch the trailer, the impression you're going to get is that AI is just bad, right? That was kind of I was worried that this movie would become would be just like, oh look, it's torture porn with AI, right? Like the AI, and I think that is something that the trailer leads you to believe is like, oh, I need to train him to become the most there's this line in the trailer that's not in the movie which is essentially along the lines where Alex the tech bro is saying something along the lines like oh like I need him to train like train him to be more efficient and I need to train him with human pain or something like that right and that's not something that like that's not like there's this kind of bait and switch that happens in Tao where you're like as soon as like Ares who's separate from Tao and that's something that's kind of like is not very clear at the start that they're two separate entities. Um, so his chief invention is not Tao. It's actually Ares. That's the one that kind of brought him to uh, claim to fame. And it's just basically a killer robot, like the worst killer robot. If you want to like an idea of what this robot looks like, 
It's like a Vex goblin from Destiny. Just look that up and they look exactly the same. If someone saw this design and was like, oh, that's a great design. Let's make it worse. I think, yeah, it really is that there is so much potential for this technology to go either way, right? And it really depends on us as human beings to decide what is the future of AI, right? And it doesn't, Tao doesn't really posit in the kind of most broad strokes. It points to two paths, which is like, Either this is a dystopian nightmare because of, you know, we let certain people take control or there's some kind of better solution wherein there's input from different groups of people, right? And I think that that to me anyway, it was beyond just like the murdering and the cool like graphics that you see and the smart paint that is like a featured quite prominently throughout the house that they're in. That's something I'll say is like, I wish the house was more of a character because there was so much potential for that house to be a character. Well, so you brought up the Vex Goblins from Destiny. I actually thought that Ares looked a little bit more like the ED-209, the Enforcement Droid 209 from Robocop. But the thing is, like, it, it's it's one of those generic robot designs mm-hmm. where you look at it, and again, the CGI is really bad, so you look at it in, in its first introductory shot, and it's, it's you know, this weird goblin-type thing. But then later on in the movie, apparently it has, like, little appendages and smaller hands that come out of its already larger hands. So they either didn't design it properly or they thought to themselves, don't worry, we'll just show them this generic robot. And then later on when we needed to do more things, it can do more things. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I'm glad you brought up the idea of the way that we teach artificial intelligence and the way that we are teaching things like Siri and Alexa and Google to interact with us. One of the chief concerns that we have right now is that children are growing up in houses where there are Amazon Echoes or there are Google Homes. And now, of course, there are Apple HomePods and they're not being very respectful to these AI. And of course, right now, most of the most of the natural language processing is taking place in big servers, you know, in Google and Amazon and Facebook and so forth. But the way that we interact with technology is incredibly important. And I sort of liked, and again, this is one of the few things that I liked about the movie, because I, I haven't had a chance to bring this up, but I, I wasn't a huge fan of Tao, mostly because of the misdirect. I thought there was a lot of, lot of tonal inconsistency between the first 15, 20 minutes and then, I, I guess, like the you know, next 45 minutes and the end of the movie, which goes back to being this escape room type thing. One of the things that I liked about it is that it shows the way in which you can have two very different people teaching, you know, the same AI to act very differently. And in that sense, I sort of saw Tao as this allegory for like a baby. And if you have an abusive parent, then the kid's not going to grow up to be as, let's say, functional as if you have a parent who's trying to teach the child to to be a good person, to do good things. I think what I liked about the movie is the way that it showed that, because when Tao was learning from Julia, you could see that like its data fragments were colorful. There was reds and greens and blues. But then later on, when Alex wipes all of Tao's memories of Julia, it goes back to this red regressive monocolor data pattern, which is fascinating because like Tao itself is designed to look sort of like an iris, but also it looks like a T, but it also has a triangle. Tao, I I think, is terrifying to me. If I were to see a friend of mine have an AI like Tao in their house, I would immediately think to myself, supervillain. This person is a supervillain and they've built a weird supercomputer that's going to take over the world. So the thing about rearing a child is very interesting because I think, you know, there's dialogue in the movie that directly supports that and certainly you know there's a a discussion that Tao and Julia have at one point about and Tao says like I can't harm my creator right and he says the same thing essentially he's he asks that 
question to Julia, right? And she doesn't answer him at the time because it brings up memories that obviously uh, are, there's trauma involved with. We're never told in like explicit terms, but clearly there was like an alcoholic father or something. <laughs> or, you know, certainly her parents were not the best, right? But something that Julia says at one point is, yes, these people gave me life, but in moving away from them and creating my own identity, I kind of create myself, right? And that's kind of one of the better and more thoughtful lines of the movie. And yeah, like I hadn't thought of it at the time, but I think that's like a really great analysis. As for the design of Tao, like I think overall, like the visual design in the movie was pretty lackluster. Like the house, it was going definitely for that supervillain vibe. And it was like so sterile. And, you know, I, again, I, I think it was like a very much a missed opportunity because there were so many like the idea of the smart paint. So Tao at one point says, hey, like there's this inductive kind of like layer on all the surfaces in the house so you can draw on it which is funny because julia is supposed to be like an art major or something or she dreams of being an art major and then her drawings are literal like more than stick figures anyway so there's so much more that they could have done with that um and especially tao's design and if i can just briefly say how he tortures Tao is like the worst thing ever. He deletes part of his source code. I was trying to wrap my head around that and I'm just, I'm just going to stop because there is no like light at the end of the tunnel for this thought process. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to get back to the missed opportunities thing in a bit, but yes, it's very strange that Alex's chief way of torturing Tao is by deleting the very thing needed to make Tao a functioning AI or a human resembling AI. Cause not to get too into the weeds with torture, but when we attempt to do harm to people to get information out of them or to get them to comply to our demands, we're not deleting parts of their memory or parts of their brain that would allow them to therefore acquiesce to our demands. We harm them physically or emotionally, but we're not like literally taking away the memories they need to walk. We're not taking away the memories they need to speak. Whereas what Alex does to Tao is take away Tao's memories, which... Since Alex's whole point is that he needs Julia and the other test subjects to feed information into an algorithm so that Tao can become smarter, he's really shooting himself in the foot. And of course, there's a metaphor there about how bad people harm themselves as a way of trying to advance, which, again, missed opportunity. But again, on the subject of missed opportunities, this movie isn't necessarily bad in the conventional sense. It's not like, you know, the ideas are awful. It's not like the acting is completely terrible, although the acting is part of the problem. So Gary Oldman as Tao, fantastic voice. Clearly, you know, Academy Award winning actor, years and years, classically trained uh, English actor. Gary Oldman, he's fantastic as the voice of Tao. And we really see Tao evolve and grow through his performance. At first, we see him as this very monotone character. The voice is very childlike. But eventually, when Tao, sort of when we reach the climax of the film, where Tao creates a, a hologram of himself or what he perceives himself to be and tries to reach out and touch Julia's hand, Tao is no longer a child or even a teenager. He's a young adult. He's, he's able to think for himself. And then Gary Oldman's performance is made all the more beautiful because when Alex does eventually delete Tao's source code and removes all of Julia's memories from Tao, Tao goes back to being very childlike and monotone. Ed Skrine's performance is pretty much all you can expect. The guys are really only on screen for maybe 10 minutes at a time, and he's only there to menace and terrify Julia. And also complain to his stockholders. <laughs> the stockholders, like, if I can, yeah, sorry, like the whole thing where he's like, 
she's like, what happens at the end? He's like, oh, we'll get a billion dollar contract. I'm like, billion dollars is nothing. <laughs> anyway, continue. It's a billion dollar contract for DARPA, which means that all of this work that he's done to make Tao more lifelike is literally just for military applications. Mm-hmm. And what's the military really going to do with an AI like Tao? They're going to put it in drones to go, you know, do things that the military does. Yeah. Bad things to hurt other people, which... Again, missed opportunity, not really delved very deeply into. I think the weakest part of this movie for me was Micah Monroe's performance. It feels like she's in a completely different movie, if I'm being honest. Because the way that Alex delivers, sorry, the way that Ed Skrine delivers his performance as Alex is this mechanical, methodical, evil, genius, tech billionaire. Tao, of course, is a child who grows up. And then there's Micah Monroe, who, you said art school. I think it's music school. There's a, there's a pamphlet on her, on her fridge for the new college of music or the music of new college, whatever it is. It's a college for music. But there's really very little to indicate that she's interested in music at all, honestly. Mm-hmm. Or um, that she's an expert. Well, that she's an expert. So there's one scene in which she's reading out an encyclopedia of music, and it's like all of this music is new to her, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe the movie is implying that she has this passion for music that she hasn't been able to pursue because of her life circumstances, and through educating Tao, this is how she's able to fulfill her dreams in a way. But again, the movie doesn't really do very much with that metaphor. What the movie does very well is show that Julia, at first, is sort of a maternal figure, for Tao. And then I would say eventually she becomes more of a sisterly figure to Tao as they're both growing up in an abusive household. And she's able to not necessarily overcome her trauma, but she's able to work through her trauma by speaking with Tao and by letting Tao know that the experiences that he is experiencing are not good, that they're not normal, and that he doesn't need to continue living in this abusive relationship, in this abusive household. In a sense, there's quite a bit of nuance to Tao, but it's nuance that you have to read into. It's not nuance that the film explicitly doles out. And that isn't to say that, of course, that every movie needs to explain itself. Not every single character needs to have an I want or I need song. But it's very clear that there's quite a bit of subtext to Tao that maybe would have worked better either as a short story, perhaps a novella or a graphic novel that that doesn't really translate as well due to the weakness of the performances. If I can bring it back to Ex Machina, I feel like there's very similar in the sense that you have this character who is more or less stuck in this house with an AI, right? But the difference is, is like, I think what Alex Garland does really well is he complicates the main character so much in that so much of Caleb's kind of interest in helping the AI he's stuck with is that there's this very like undercurrent of lust and sexual want. Whereas Julia is just like, she feels like sorely underwritten and underacted. I loved how she was like a very capable character. Granted, her escape attempt leads to the death of her two inmates. And, you know, Tao does suffer a lot of pain because of her continued repeated uh, escape attempts. But yes, she is trapped in this house, but it feels like she is always just one step away from getting out from an impossible situation, right? Because she spent her whole life getting out of impossible situations. But like, they could have done so much more with her character. And there were like, like there were some lines that were, they were so flat. It's a shame because as much as like Tao was like central to the film, I think about like other movies like this, like for instance, Interstellar, like so much of like the charm of that movie is the interplay between Matthew McConaughey and Tars, the robot in that movie. I always remember, remember that line and he's like ed it's a tesseract 
<laughs> like it's just like one of the best lines in the movie right and it's because how uh the actor who voices tars just delivers that line right and the, he's like where are we and he's like it's a tesseract and it's like you idiot like you're supposed to be a nasa scientist right <laughs> like <laughs> anyway um there was never that kind of moment right where i thought like you know like there's movies like this where like just the interaction between the human character and the AI character is just like so perfect. Right. And it was like, certainly Gary Oldman brought it there, but Julia didn't, unfortunately. Of course, we're also led to believe that there's something about Julia's brainwaves that enable her to more adequately provide information to Tao. But we don't really see anything on screen. Well, that actually, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. We see quite a bit on screen that would suggest that Julia is, in fact, quite intellectually gifted. We see that she's able to solve these puzzles. She's able to escape. Of course, like you mentioned, she her escape attempts lead to the death of the other two inmates. But she's the one who fashions the grappling hook out of her pants and the... Actually, what, what was the metal piece? Scissors? She, uh, she, well, scissors that she pickpocketed. Oh, right. There we yeah. go. So she, she, she knew to pickpocket those scissors because she knew that they were going to help her in some way. The early attempts in the movie to build up Julia's escape IQ, we'll call it, those are quite successful because we think to ourselves, she's been able to succeed as a thief for so long because she's, she's clever. She's able to get out of difficult situations. But then the movie pivots to being, like you mentioned, this sci-fi film where Julia is forced to solve puzzles to make Tao smarter. But it sort of seems to me like the movie was suggesting that maybe Alex was several steps ahead of Julia and that he did put all those prisoners together to see who would be able to escape so that they'd be able to feed that information to the algorithm. But then Alex drops a line and says, you know, you're able to activate more of your prefrontal cortex by solving these puzzles than if I was torturing you. To which I, I think, well, I mean, that's how long have you been working on this project to realize that torture isn't the best way to get people to, to think, really? Yeah, like the whole, the whole, like, it was all very iffy about because, uh, you know, as I understood it, Tao was separate from the Psy project. And it was all very muddy to me about, like, what his motives were. And that, that's like, you need, like, a great villain in these kind of movies. And Alex, unfortunately, certainly he was menacing. I think Ed Skirian was, like, the perfect casting choice in that regard. But again, sorry to keep bringing it back to Ex Machina, but, like, Oscar Isaac is a much better villain, right? Like, he's flawed. We see more of him. He's more charismatic. But also, what he's trying to do makes a lot more sense. Whereas here, Ed Skirin's just like, he's created this, like, murder robot, like, the best murder robot there ever was. And somehow his company is, like, in deep trouble. Like, it really didn't make sense. (laughs) So uh, that's, like, you know, I have to, like... I wish I could offer a more nuanced kind of critique of that. But I think it really is just, like, one of the things where... We were talking about it slack. Like, this movie feels like it was maybe, like, one writer away and a couple more drafts from being, like, beyond passable to potentially pretty good. And I think that was the one of the things they needed to massage where Alex's kind of motives had to be, like, either simplified or made clear or just thought through. I think thought through is the one they, like, they really needed to put more thought and care into his motives so that he goes from just like, hey, I'm torturing you to, like, there's a reason why I'm torturing you. Which brings us back to something that I like to call the Netflix conundrum, which is these sci-fi movies that are B-movies that have, you know, middle-of-the-road actors like Ed 
Scrying, who you see in, in stuff like Game of Thrones very briefly. There are ideas there. There are nuggets of ideas there. It's interesting to think about some of these ideas, but the execution is sort of the issue. The acting isn't necessarily up to snuff, or maybe the writing just needs to be massaged a little bit more. Like you said, maybe you know one or two more drafts, one or two more revisions before it's really there. Because ultimately, if you look at Tao beyond the fact that it's a movie about abuse and, and the trauma sustained in childhood by abusive parents, there's quite a bit there. Like you said, again, it's a movie about artificial intelligences. It's a movie about smart houses. There's a little bit of drones in there. There's the fear of tech bros and tech bro culture. So there's a lot of nuance there. And it's these are a lot of important questions that we are asking ourselves right now. And a movie like Tao really could have again, not necessarily provided meaningful answers or solutions, but certainly it could have stimulated meaningful discussion. And it's stimulating meaningful discussion now because we're reading really, really far into it, but we're reading really far into it because we have to. It's not like the movie gave this to us and said, oh, here you go. Here is the thesis of of the film. I can't remember if this is what you told me or if it was something I read, but I distinctly remember that at some point Netflix said that, like, when they go about kind of acquiring these original properties, they don't think about like what critics are going to say. They look at like, they just buy stuff that quote unquote, you're going to watch. Right. And I think like the genesis of Tao is really, they had these movies like ex machina. They saw like, that was a movie that like, I saw it in theaters, but I don't imagine the vast majority of people like they, the vast majority of people missed it, right? But it had this long life on Netflix where people saw it. They saw people were watching movies like this. They saw people love shows like Firefly, and they're in this crunch where they need to create as much original content. And they're like, "This is, I think, the issue with the algorithmic approach is like they're like, well, if we create a movie like this, and like as long as it's passable, but." our recommendation algorithm is just going to like, hey, you watched X, Y, and Z sci-fi movies. You're going to like these ones, right? And because it's the Netflix algorithm and for the most part, it's pretty good. You're going to take that recommendation. And I, I don't feel like I wasted my time watching Tao, right? Like, which is probably the nicest thing you can say of that movie. It wasn't a complete waste of time, but certainly it was forgettable. But I think it accomplished what Netflix wanted, right? Which is I watched it and that's all they care about at the end. I got to be honest, I'm a little offended that according to Netflix, Tao has a 95% match to my Netflix profile. Likewise, I had 98. You had 98%? Yeah. What are you watching on Netflix? <laughs> complete trash, apparently. Or, inversely, this is probably just a result of the digital profile that Netflix has amassed about you. And that sort of leads us into our next segment that I like to call Digital Lives, Digital Profiles. Now, admittedly, Igor, this movie isn't really about digital profiling in the conventional sense. After all, no one uses anyone's browsing history or social media presence to create a profile based on digitally accessible information. But the movie is tangentially related to the subject in that Alex is very clearly using his victim's memories to feed information into algorithms designed to decode these human experiences to create better artificial intelligences, better AIs. And again, like we talked about in our previous segment, before Alex forces Julia to solve these puzzles, we see him extract her memories through an implant that's connected to her brain that's close to her spine. So in a way, this movie is very much about the tech executives behind our favorite multinational tech conglomerates and the ways in which they harvest our private data to build better products. Now, I spoke with Lex Gill. I'm a research fellow at the Citizen Lab. To learn more about digital profiling. As Lex explained to me, digital profiling is a very complicated subject. 
It's actually a huge complex question because it's almost a question about what is the dominant business model of the internet. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think that we, as consumers, get a lot of products and services that appear to be for free. And it's important to remember that actually companies like Google or Facebook, for example, make the vast majority of their money through advertising. So their business model involves kind of extracting as much information as they possibly can from you and about you, about your behaviors, your preferences, your choices, and building detailed profiles of those behaviors and and choices in order to sell them to advertising companies that are interested in targeting people who are like you, whether that's on a demographic basis or otherwise. So really, it's uh, the business model, the dominant business model of the web is advertising through surveillance. So there's a strong market incentive for private companies to collect as much as they can about you. So that happens in a couple of different ways. The services and applications that you intentionally choose to use, like Google or Facebook, for example. If you've ever taken a look at a terms of service document and You know, when you click I accept, when you install a new application, you'll see that you're giving companies information about everything from the location data related to your cell phone, to the content of your messages, to information about your battery. And there's, I would say, a very superficial illusion of consent there because most people don't, aren't necessarily aware of the fact that they're handing over that information or what that might mean for them. But there is that kind of direct tracking where companies that you have a sort of contract with that you know that, you know, you've downloaded their app they're collecting your information and they're potentially either reselling it to advertisers or making it available, making their platform available so that advertisers can target you. So like Facebook is, you know, the sort of classic example of that. There's also a sort of a layer of commercial actors underneath that that are even less visible to ordinary internet users. So like when you visit a website, and this normally happens through trackers that monitors your web browsing pattern. So when you visit a website, there are these third-party trackers that get stored on your machine. So maybe you've heard of words like cookies or web beacons or pixel tags, stuff like this. So basically, these are trackers that attach you when you visit a website. So often what they're doing is just, you know, I have a website and I just want a tracker to count how many people visit my website. That's fine. But sometimes they also collect other information about like what other websites you're visiting, information about how you use the website, the specific devices and features of those devices that you're using. They do something called browser fingerprinting, which is collecting information about the particular web browser that you're using in order to create a more specific and unique profile just to you. So everything from like the size of the window, it gets really quite detailed. And so what the purpose of these types of drugs, I mean, in fact, you know, if you've ever been to a website where Facebook has had a like button, but you're not on Facebook's website, or Google has the little red G plus button, the Twitter's bird, when those are those like and share buttons are on a website, those are operating as trackers as well. So that means that Facebook or Google 
where Twitter can see that you visited that website. So there's this whole sort of infrastructure of tracking in order to – so you're not just being tracked when you visit Facebook. You're also being tracked on any website where there's a Facebook like button. And then there's also a whole ecosystem of trackers that aren't even businesses that are selling you any service that you'd actually use. There are companies that are called data brokers where literally the only purpose of those businesses is to amass as much information about you as possible – whether by buying it from other parties or by doing this type of tracking and then reselling that to advertisers. So the kinds of information that are collected are vast and profound, but there are a couple that are, I think, maybe sometimes most problematic that people don't really think of. One of those things is location tracking. You can learn so much about a person by knowing where they've been and where they're going. You can tell where they go to school, where they work, how they commute. You can learn about their lifestyle, who they are around by comparing their location with other people's location data. You can learn about whether or not they go to church, whether or not they have a partner, whether or not they're cheating on that partner and a whole range of other bits of information that can create a very detailed portrait and aggregate about a person's life. You know, the other thing is what's called social graph monitoring, where information about you and who you speak to is amassed or who you're even physically near to is amassed in order to paint a picture of your social networks. And that's part of understanding the type of relationships that people have, the structure of their families, the nature of their friendships and business partnerships and all of that in order to create a more detailed portrait of you as a consumer. Lex also touched on some of the risks associated with so much of our lives being readily accessible online. The types of risks you face depend on who you are. So that's the first thing. I think sort of if you talk about the average consumer, a risk that all of us face is through irresponsible handling of this data, whether there's a leak or a data breach that exposes people's personal information to the public. We often think, oh, you know, what's the big deal? This is advertising information. The only thing that they know is like what model refrigerator I was looking at last week. That's absolutely not true, right? This the things that we tell our computers are more intimate than anything we ever tell anyone in our real lives. Your online behavior reveals things about your sexual history, your religious beliefs, your political views, the most controversial things, the most strange and disgusting things, the most intimate, beautiful things that you've ever thought or believed. And, and from that, people can face a myriad of risks if that information is revealed. So that can include anything from identity theft and blackmail and sort of typical crimes related to identity and, and information or, or even things like social ostracism. So for example, now in the 21st century, it's most often the case that your web browser knows that you're gay before most of your friends and family do, right? For people in certain communities, that can be an extraordinary risk. In, in some countries, that can be a, a risk of imprisonment or, or violence. So, you know, that's just one example of how, depending on who you are in the world and how you're situated, there are different types of, of threats you might face. And that's just sort of from the, you know, there's also a range of risks related to discriminatory or prejudicial treatment, right? So there are studies that demonstrate, for example, that the aggregation of this type of data about people on Facebook can lead to discrimination at the sort of consumer level. So people who are perceived to be poor are not getting advertisements with preferential interest rates or are not seeing real estate or housing listings based on their rates, for example, because at some point an algorithm decided that people of a particular rate, in this case, normally African-American people, are not lucrative targets for these types of ads. So there's this world of mass sort of surveillance for commercial purposes is also really intimately linked with forms of algorithmic profiling of people. 
And so from a sort of consumer perspective, it can often be the case that the way that advertising services are interpreting your information are in either subtle or very explicit ways disadvantaging you. There's also, I think, an, a risk at the political level, right, where to the extent that these tools are now, I think, have matured to the point where they are a, a really fundamental tool in political campaigning in, in ways that we see are quite toxic and manipulative and dystopian. There are questions about how micro-targeting based on our personal information can either encourage or discourage someone from voting. Cory Doctorow actually published a very wonderful piece recently where he was talking about how, uh, from his vantage point, we sort of got this political influence market framework wrong. It's not that data brokerage services and political advertisers are convincing people to be racist, right? People were always racist or people were always xenophobic. It's that these services allow those individuals to be aggressively micro-targeted and encouraged to participate politically in a way that they might not have been targetable before. And so that has a distortionary effect, you know, and I say racist or xenophobic or whatever, but this applies to the, the full range of the political spectrum. And so these services have a, a sort of distortionary effect on democratic engagement where, you know, ultimately we might be looking at a future where the question isn't really how do you convince someone to vote for you based on your platform, but how do you micro-target and profile distinct segments of the population to get to a polling station? And in, in fact, that's always been sort of the game of the electoral process to some degree, but we're seeing that in a really exacerbated way or uh, happening in more complex ways. She also brought up the subject of state surveillance. So I would make a distinction first between law enforcement surveillance, so that's happening in the course of a criminal investigation associated with a, a specific crime for which there there may be some suspicion that, that you have committed, and intelligence gathering activities by agencies like in Canada, the Communication Security Establishment, or CSIS in the United States, the NSA, so electronic spy agencies, signals intelligence agencies. And at that level, by having this entire market ecosystem of actors that are developing very sophisticated profiles on individuals, aggregating mass amounts of information about them, in a lot of ways, whether it's intentional or not, they're essentially making making the job very easy for investigative bodies to capture information about you and your behavior. It's important to understand that these kind of ecosystems, both sort of market surveillance and state surveillance are interlinked and they're, they sort of feed into each other in, in difficult to map ways. And I think that one thing that people may not always understand is that to the extent that your service provider, whether that's Gmail or Facebook or something, uh, you know, can see information about you, like your emails or your messages, that will be visible to law enforcement or intelligence, at least under some circumstances. So with law enforcement, where it's communications data, they're going to have to have a warrant and reasonable grounds to believe in a whole framework. You know, with intelligence agencies, that issue is sometimes less clear. So if you look at the NSA's PRISM program, for example, that was revealed by Edward Snowden a number of years ago now, essentially the NSA was getting access to the back end of, of people's social media information, emails, and, and all kinds of things. So it's important to understand that these relationships kind of work in both directions. Lex also specified that there are some protections in place. In Canada, we have a constitution, and that constitution protects us against unreasonable search and seizure. So intrusions into areas where we have a reasonable expectation of privacy. That's the legal test. In the case of a criminal investigation, a search without a warrant is presumptively unreasonable. 
that means that, you know, law enforcement can't search without a warrant. And in particular, where we're talking about communications information, they need a special authorization from a judge to, for example, access your email from Google. So that framework exists, and that's what it is in the law. It has become more difficult in recent years around surveillance of what's called metadata, so information about your information, where historically law enforcement has argued that there should be a lower threshold in the law. So rather than reasonable grounds to believe that you've committed an offense or that evidence of an offense will be discovered through the search, that it should be reasonable suspicion. So suspicion is a lower standard than belief. And that means that in some cases, metadata may be easier for law enforcement to acquire than communications data. But from my perspective, that distinction is a little bit artificial because, you know, when we're talking about location tracking, metadata, like where you've been or who you've been phoning, for example, can reveal very, very intimate details about who who you are. But that's neither here nor there. So, you know, when we're talking about the course of a a criminal investigation, that kind of prior judicial authorization is normally required. And and there are exceptions to that. But in terms of this sort of tracking and monitoring and access to data brokering services and stuff like that, it's a little bit more complex. One kind of unsolved issue in the law that keeps popping up in different places and Canadian discourse lately is this question of quote-unquote publicly available information. There's a question about whether you can have a reasonable expectation of privacy in some cases, even if something is publicly available. And how we define publicly available even is a really interesting and strange question. So maybe if, you know, I have a personal website, the things I post on that personal website are clearly designed for public, you know, consumption Statistics Canada data on the government website, clearly publicly available. But things like, is it publicly available information if it's on Facebook, but I need to have a Facebook account and be your friend to see it? Not as clear. Is it publicly available if it's been made publicly available because of a security breach and people posted your information like publicly without your permission? Like these are the types of questions that are sort of emerging around this. And, and there's a whole question about all these sort of identifiers that we put out into the world, how publicly available those might be. So that's one kind of area of conversation. I can't speak to specifically what the Toronto police are doing, and I would be fascinated to know what their internal protocols are for this. I think that in general, law enforcement tasked with investigating a, you know, a specific crime, you know, specific crimes committed by specific people at specific times. And so this type of profiling information, you know, certainly may be of use to them in certain circumstances, but I think that the the bulk collection of this data is more likely to be happening at the level of our signals intelligence agencies. And in fact, Bill C-59, which is a new national security bill that's actually still before the House, includes provisions that more explicitly allow the communication security establishment and CSIS to capture quote-unquote publicly available information, which they're defining as anything that could be bought, subscribed to, or otherwise acquired, purchased, without pretty much any oversight whatsoever. So there's definitely an interest in capturing that kind of data, which could include data purchased from data brokerage services. And from an intelligence gathering perspective, where they're not looking to necessarily a specific crime committed by a specific person at a specific point in time, but rather gathering intelligence in aggregate about everything from, you know, Canada's interests abroad to national security issues, the desire to have vast amounts of information and be able to analyze it in aggregate is it's much more interesting in terms of their organizing model. Of course, there's an argument to be made that since we do sort of technically consent to handing over all of our information when we accept and agree to terms of services, we shouldn't be surprised that our information is being harvested. Igor, what are your thoughts on that subject? Do you think that we are, in fact, consenting to having all of our information pretty much being analyzed by an algorithm? 
you know, like so many kind of human flaws, it comes from ignorance, right? In the sense that I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which is, I think, what you're alluding to, at least somewhat in this recent Gmail scandal, what those both show is so many of us are ignorant of the business models that fuel these companies, right? Certainly when Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress, he was asked at one point, what is, you know, how does Facebook make money, right? As if that wasn't something that this, I can't remember which senator asked it, but certainly they didn't know this, right? Like they had to have it explained to them that, A, uh, yes, Facebook is free, quote unquote, but you have to, you give up your personal information so that ads can be targeted at you. And I think, I hope what all of this is going to lead to is we're going to become kind of smarter consumers in which we kind of really investigate the business models that fuel these companies, right? As I said, so maybe, you know, instead of using Google, right, you'll use DuckDuckGo, for instance. Now that's tough because, you know, Google makes, they figured it out. They have to make really compelling products, right, to keep you in their ecosystem so that the cost of giving up a product like Gmail is too hard in comparison to other email, right? Like email across the board is terrible. And while Gmail is terrible, it's the least terrible. And that's what makes it tenable. Granted, Lex did take issue with the argument that I made a little bit earlier. I am not totally sure about your statement that when you agree to a terms of service, it always says that they're not going to resell your information. So in fact, there are services that that do this. And often, it's, you know, what, one of the things that we saw through the, the whole Facebook story was it, it often wasn't Facebook itself. It was third-party applications that Facebook allowed to use its platform, right? And in a lot of those cases, you don't actually get really a full terms of use of service type document. You actually get like a little truncated set of bullet points that is almost so vague as to be meaningless. So there's that. There's also a lot of these data brokerage services capture information not directly from consumers, but from publicly available sources. So things like uh, social media and blogs, web scrapers, as well as commercial sources. So things like before this kind of surveillance on the internet was a big thing, credit card companies used to do this. Credit card companies would aggregate information about what you had purchased and where you had purchased and when and use that information and sort of resold it to advertisers. So there's a whole ecosystem of data brokering that is part of of the internet ecosystem, but it also sort of goes out and beyond that. And so, yeah, the resale of information and sharing with third parties and, and partners and stuff like that, it, it is actually much more common than people think it is. But I would say that in the case of applications like Facebook, there's this sort of product that Facebook sells directly to advertisers, but then there's also this sort of capture that's taking place with these third-party applications. And, that, and the same thing goes for your phone. You know, it's not necessarily, if you have an iPhone, it's not necessarily Apple who's engaging in these services, and that's not really Apple's, I mean, Apple's business model remains more about product and hardware. However, you know, the different apps that you're getting through the app store are potentially collecting and harvesting this kind of information. So that's that. But I think that this, we have to go back to this other piece that I, that I had mentioned earlier around tracking through browsers and monitoring people's browser activity. And I think that that's a huge source of very invisible types of surveillance where you can be very, very uniquely identified with only a few sort of key identifiers about who you are and, and what, you know, what you're doing, what your online activity looks like, and that can reveal a tremendous amount of value. So then the question at hand is, Igor, how do we protect ourselves? Yeah, so I think, as I said, really find out what kind of models these companies are using. And, you know, there was I had this similar conversation with one of my relatives who's a CTO at Nokia Ericsson. And he was basically and he was basically saying, like, the way we protect in ourselves in this situation is 
we got to pay for these services, right? Like there are alternatives to all the services we use uh, that have become like day-to-day, such as Gmail, such as, you know, Google search, where in many cases they are kind of subscription models or like in the instance of DuckDuckGo, for instance, they serve you generalized ads. And it's really a matter of finding these alternatives or it's digging through the settings menu of Facebook, for instance, and seeing who are you sharing your, you know, third party, your information to which third parties. I guarantee you, you'll be shocked at how many, it's because it kind of like builds up without you really noticing it is like, wow, I'm sharing with this app I used 10 years ago at this point, right? That's certainly something I found out when I went to, you know, went through one of these tutorials, how to minimize the information that you share with Facebook. And you'll be just shocked at like what you've granted access to without knowing, right? Because one, the onboarding process is not great with Facebook, right? Or like it's something that they're like, they're too happy to let you skip, right? And come back to quote unquote later. So I think those are the alternatives. Really, as a consumer, really become, you know, interested in learning what the business models are. You know, at the end of the day, it really is like up to you to decide whether this is for you. And if it is, there are certainly ways to mitigate how much information is shared, right? Like in the instance of the Gmail one, I looked through my third party uh, integrations and I disabled all of them, right? You can also install ad blockers as much as we are in the publishing industry and i shouldn't say install an ad blocker install an ad blocker not only does it make your web surfing experience safer we're bombarded by ads every day also install if not an ad blocker install something like ghostery which it prevents tracking that is like probably the one of the best things you can add-ons you can install on your web browser just because you know not only is it obnoxious but really it is just ugly how these like kind of plugins track us and you can with ghostery you can see which ones are tracking you from website to website to website so that is if nothing else just install ghostery and start from there here's what lex had to say about the subject of protecting ourselves and mitigating our digital tracking in terms of the browser surveillance issue i think that one of the best tools that's out there are suites of of browser extensions so these are little additions kind of actually like little add-ons to to the browser you're using, whether that's Chrome or Firefox or something like that, that block and disable trackers and advertising. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a technology and human rights organization based in the United States, make an app called Privacy Badger. And basically, it just sort of sits in the background of your browser, and it detects trackers on web pages for you, and it blocks them automatically. And it's a, it's a fantastic tool. It works really well. You don't even have to really notice or think about the fact that it's happening. And it really shields you from a lot of these issues. Another thing that people can do is use ad blockers because ads often are not just like a static JPEG, like a photo. They're also communicating with your computer. They're collecting information about you. They're tracking you. And so if you use an ad blocking service, that blocks you from that type of surveillance. And then I guess people also just need to do what people in the security community would say. um, You you have to examine your own threat model. Using any combination of these technologies is not going to totally make you anonymous on the internet. And if what you're doing, say, for example, you're a human rights activist abroad, or you're a journalist working on a story that might expose some form of like government corruption or something like this, you're going to need to use more sophisticated tools that will really protect your privacy in more substantial ways. So there's a web browser called Tor, T-O-R, that folks can learn about. Um, it's gotten 
very, very easy to use. It looks like any other web browser at this point, like Chrome or Firefox, again. And that helps to anonymize your internet traffic, and it makes you much more difficult to identify individually as you browse the web. And so what Tor does, essentially, is it routes your internet traffic through a bunch of intermediary computers so that it's not clear. Your, your IP address becomes obfuscated, and your IP address is a number that's associated with your, your particular device normally or collection of devices. And that can be used to sort of narrow down who you are individually and also know your location. So tools like Tor and to a lesser extent virtual private networks, VPNs hide your IP address. So, you know, a VPN could be appropriate for certain kinds of consumer activity. It isn't a VPN is just someone else's computer, right? So it just looks like your traffic is coming out of someone else's computer, but the person who operates the VPN can still see all of your traffic. So if you're looking for meaningful anonymity online, I think tools like Tor are still the gold standard. Finally, I got a chance to ask Lex how we can ensure that marginalized groups and communities aren't negatively affected by digital profiling. I think it's important to remember always, I feel like I've written this sentence like a hundred times in the last year, that marginalized and vulnerable groups are both disproportionately targeted by surveillance, but they're also disproportionately affected or they face disproportionate consequences as a result of that surveillance. So somebody who is a white Canadian citizen is going to be in a very different circumstance than somebody who has a tenuous immigration status, somebody who's a political activist, somebody who is a member of a religious or ethnic minority group. And it's important to think through what that means. So where somebody might, where the result of this whole infrastructure of of surveillance may be for someone with a lot of privilege, like, oh, I'm getting these annoying targeted advertisements that are a little bit creepy, for another person might be consequences like deportation, imprisonment, consequences from their employer, a whole range of other things. We really have to think through these types of systems, recognizing also, I think this is something that we're seeing from our neighbors in the South as well, that liberal democracy is very, very fragile. Liberal democratic institutions are tremendously fragile. And when you build this machinery where the infrastructure for this kind of data collection exists for one purpose, like selling you more targeted ads, it can easily be sort of appropriated and manipulated by other interests that are perhaps less innocuous. So how do we protect those groups? It's a really complex question. Part of it may just be that we need, in fact, I think that a huge part of the answer is we need different business models for how the internet works that don't just monetize people's personal information. But it's also about recognizing when we design these systems for people who are developers and engineers and technologists and computer scientists, recognizing how these types of systems may affect the most disadvantaged and marginalized groups. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and pretty much every podcasting app out there. Igor, where can our listeners find you? I'm at Igor Bonifacic. That's I-G-U-R-B-O-N-I-F-A-C-I-C. And of course, they can find you at MobileSyrup.com. Great site. I've never heard of it, but I've heard it's really good. Well, you can find me on Twitter at SamirChaber94, and of course, you can find me at MobileSyrup.com. You can find Mobile Syrup at Mobile Syrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, feel free to send us any movies or television shows you'd like us to discuss on future episodes. And if you've got subjects or issue ideas, please feel free to send those as well. Thanks for tuning in. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.